Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 101 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm here down in the bunker in the vomitorium, as always, with my good friend and co-host David. Dr. David Noe, that is. Yeah, David C. Noe. Oh, we got to go with the whole mm-hmm. nine yards. Okay, Dr. David the C. The C stands for controversial. Yes, exactly. Curmudgeon. Okay, I'll take it. All right. Uh, how are you doing over there, Dr. DCN? Not too bad, All thanks. Right. Here we are in Vomitorium South, mm-hmm. located in the generous basement of uh, the Reformation Heritage Bookstore. Yes. Yeah, who has loaned this space to us. Yeah. I'm doing okay. It's, uh, what is it? It's uh, middle October, mid-late October. Yep. We have the prospect of Michigan weather approaching and... Uh, Let's face it, audience, that'll give us something to complain about for right. the next several months. You exactly. like a good complain? I do like a good complain, mm-hmm. right? And, and the, the, you know, the fall weather, yeah. you know, it can go either way. We've had right. some glorious fall days, and we've That's had right. the, kind of the blustery, rainy, um, awful ones. Yes, the yeah. street on which I live is now blanketed by a covering of gold leaves that have fallen from the trees. I love the street you live on. That's, yeah. a, that's a great drive. Deciduously. Those magnificent nice? trees. It really is really nice. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And then how about your neighborhood? Any fall color poking oh, yeah. out? Lots of fall color there, but um, you know it's kind of gray and, and blustery out right now. And right. I hate those big winds that just that just um, rip the trees bare. And then, yes. Oh, okay. It's 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 done. It's real. It's here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Winter is on. Yeah. So hey, Dave, what are we talking about tonight? We're going to talk about the tonight. Tonight. You fast forwarded and skipped the whole afternoon. This afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, someone's crazy. I guess I could like to pretend this is like a, you know, a late night talk show. Yeah, is that how you like to maybe, think of maybe it? Maybe that's what it is. Right? right. So what are we talking about this afternoon? Right. Well, live from Burbank, California, we're yeah. talking about um, the Aeneid Book 6. And I think this is the third episode, isn't it? It is. Yep. Yeah. The third episode on Book 6. Uh, we're down in the underworld. We're rummaging around. We're meeting the cast of characters. And uh, we're going to start out today with some viewer mail. Yes, we are. Right. So in place of a shout out, we got this nice comment question from a Mr. Matt McCravey. Mm-hmm. And with Thanksgiving approaching, it seems appropriate to call him <laughs> Matt Past the McCravey. Yeah, I think so. I think he'd appreciate that. I think he would. Right. <laughs> So Matt asks us uh, a good question, doesn't he? You want yes, to read that question? Yes. He, he writes, is it possible that the bow resists Aeneas because of a Roman conception of having to work hard to earn fate? Ah, okay. So this is the this is the cunctantem, right? Yes, the, the sluggish the, bow? The resisting bow, yes. Yeah, cunctantem. Mm-hmm. Slow to come out. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then the, the follow-up question is, can you compare and contrast this to J- Jacob wrestling the angel of the Lord in Genesis? Uh, interesting. So what do you make of this, Jeff? Well, um... You know, I, I still have trouble kind of reconciling the resistance of the bow with the um, with the Sybil's prophecy. Right? Okay. So the prophecy said, you know, if this, if you know, if, if fate is vouchsafing all of this for you, right. it will come easily into your hands. Right. right. If the bow fits, you don't acquit. Something, something like that. Something like that. Right. You'll, you'll never quit. Maybe that's there. It. You go. There you if go. If the bow fits, you'll never quit. Right. And um, but I think in relation to Matt's first question, is it possible the bow resists because of you know to work hard to earn fate? Right. I mean, I think that's in keeping. With uh, larger themes that we've already talked about, that you know, you know, it was such a, um, it was such a um, tremendous thing to build the Roman Empire. You know, yes, this, 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 everything kind oh, of yeah. c- comes as a cost, right? Conti molis erat. It yeah. was of such a great task, conda Romanum gentium. Right, yeah. and that the whole thing is 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 soaked in blood as mm. well. It's, it's born in in battle, trail of tears. Right, and Virgil is 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 upfront about I think the cost of that. So maybe I would say. That the resisting bow is is reminding his audience that yeah um, yes Virgil uh, sorry Aeneas is fated to do this, but it's not going to be a cakewalk mm-hmm. right. So um, I, I mean, does that how does that strike you? Does it, yes, I was trying to think of the um, I was trying to think of the real the premise of the question, the quote Roman com- Roman conception of having to work hard to earn fate, and I've been mulling that since. Mm-hmm. Since uh, Matt's question uh, landed in our inbox, yeah, is that true? And I, I guess I'd kind of like to divide the question. Yeah. Okay. So, fate uh, happens to a Roman whether they want it or not. It's the nature of fate, and Romans are required, according to the Mos Maiorum, to work hard for practically everything they earn. 
but whether those two are connected, I'm a, I'm still a bit at a loss to yeah. settle that question. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um. Like I'm th- trying to think of examples from myth or or from history that right. say that that also kind of spell that out. Maybe in um, some of the Republican heroes, you know, before or right after the founding of the of the Republic, you know, five five ten five oh nine BC. Mm-hmm. You think about the guy who stuck his hand in the fire, right? Oh yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. Um, uh, so he, he was fated to do that because that's his character, you might say. Right. But it was torturously painful, right? He still had to endure it. Right. And so, you know, to the extent uh, the extent to which fate being painful and uh, fate requiring hard work, uh, the extent to which those ideas are similar, then I think Matt is right. Yeah, I think so too. And if you think in terms of like the structure of the hero's journey, you mm-hmm. know, um, you don't get resurrection unless there's a death involved, right? You have to go to the catabasis. You have to go through the. You have to suffer into truth, right? Right. That's a very well. I think that's. I think that's a concept you find around the world, and also you. I think you also see kind of this heaven helps those who help themselves. Yes. As a kind of a quality in in lots of uh, not just in the Greeks and Romans, but in in you know, cultural mythological traditions right. around the world. Um, so now the second part of the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He'd like us to compare and, and contrast it to Jacob wrestling the angel of the Lord in Genesis. That's really interesting. And I'm not a, what, a comparative religionist? Yeah. Or something like that. Uh, but in that story, Jacob is, um, he's heading back, if I'm not mistaken, he's heading back to uh, meet up with Esau. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's afraid that Esau is going to wreak havoc on him because, you know... He's ja- stolen the blessing. Correct. Right. Jacob was a scoundrel, right? He mm-hmm. grasps the heel. He was a trickster and a deceiver. Yep. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and they wrestle all night and uh, he clings to him for a blessing, right? Clinging for a blessing. And eventually it's given, but it comes with the cost of the dislocation of his hip. Right. Right. And this is taken to be a theophany, that is an Old Testament appearance of Christ in a pre-incarnate form, mm. right? That's mm-hmm. that's how he could wrestle with him, and it'd be called the angel of the Lord rather than just your, you know, garden variety angel. Right, right, right. right. If there is such a thing, <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. So, is it similar? Um, so, uh, Jacob would be our Aeneas in this, correct. In this, com- in this comparison. Yeah, right? and the struggle would be, you know, pulling the bow and um, bow resisting and wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Uh, I can only give a general principle that I think is valid when looking at these stories, mm-hmm. and then McCravey and company can decide if there's any value in what I'm saying. Okay. And that is, I think when comparing these stories, it's really important to look at the motives of the individuals and not the external similarities, mm. because the external similarities will be profound, right? So the, for example, the Israelite system of sacrifice and the Roman system of sacrifice were extraordinarily similar. Right. Everyone practically around the Mediterranean is sacrificing in the same way. So the externalities are really identical. Does that mean it's the same kind of activity? I would say on the whole, no, because the intentions are different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really that that matters when it comes to human-divine interaction. What is the intention of the individual and what's the intention Mm. of the divine? Yeah. So um, I wonder whether Jacob's motive here is quite different than Aeneas's. Right. And if so, I would say that's the the most important um, and salient point of contrast. Gotcha. That's really, it's interesting. That's very well said. Thank you. Um, the one thing that I thought of too is um, I'm right in the middle of teaching a, a world religions class. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you find in lots of, of cultures, particularly kind of indigenous cultures, is that uh, young men have to go through some kind of um, kind of trial right. um, before they're kind of accepted into the into the group? The right? rite of passage, the rite of passage, right? And so that often comes with a um, with a cost. So I was just I was just um, teaching about uh, in Aboriginal tribes in Australia, um, often young men will. Um, have a tooth pulled, or oh. maybe the top Whoa. of the top of their pinky cut off. Or well, I prefer that, I think. Or a scar. Okay. Um, they they it has to cost them something physically. Yeah. Before they can move on, and so that reminded me. Uh, well, you know, Jacob having his his um his hip dislocated. Right. Is that he? You know, he meets he meets the god. Right. He goes through this trial, but he he there forever kind of carries a a a, a scar. Yeah. Or, or a permanent reminder of that. Right. Of that of the of that moment. And in Genesis, it's also used as a story to explain. I mean, I take it as fully historical, but as a story to explain why uh, the Jews don't eat that certain part of the hip oh, right, right, you right. Know, on, on some animals because it's, you know, it's been proven sacred because of their ancestor, yeah. their founder. So it's an ideology. Correct. Yeah. So what was Jacob's motive? I think Jacob's motive was to get himself out of a tight spot and his character has undergone a solid reform. Right. 
What was Aeneas's motive? Well, I mean, there too. I think I think if you if you kind of telescope out from from Jacob, you could say, okay, Jacob goes through this. Yes, to further a kind of a destiny for the Hebrew people, right? right. What will become Israel, right? But that's not his motive here. In the moment. In the moment, Aeneas, no, it's much more personal and individual. Yes, Aeneas is trying to fulfill a, a fate. I mean, that's been it's been front loaded, you know, countless times up to this that's point. That's right. right? So, I guess that's why he seems like a. I'm going to say this now. You know, it's been your theme throughout the Aeneid. He seems a less sympathetic character. Yeah, he's kind of following, you know, the playbook. Here's the manual for you know getting into the underworld. Right. Checking the boxes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No surprise right. kind of thing. And that it makes, I think that, um, yeah, Jacob, by contrast, is a much more kind of three-dimensional Absolutely. character, right? Yeah. yeah. And the motives are, are, are so much more intensely personal. Yeah, and complicated. Yeah. You know, they overlap. You right. know, is he, is he trying to get, um, is he trying, you know, to, to reconcile with his brother? Is he trying to save his skin? Is he trying to protect his his wives, you know, and right. his, his children. It's it's very complicated. Yeah, and then and then add to that this very visceral encounter with the deity. Right. Which I mean, so I mean, Aeneas is he's met his mother, yeah, you know, in kind of disguised form, but then he only realizes it's her after she's gone, whom he can't embrace. Right. Right. Though he tries repeatedly. Right. 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 right? Yeah. Exactly. And he complains about it. Right. Well, Jacob in this encounter got more than an embrace. Right. Yes. It was a strenuous. It was a, a strenuous a time. Full Nelson. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you got an opening quote for us, I Jeff. do. I chose this. And this is going to take us in a little bit of a different direction. I thought I, I chose it really just, I thought it was kind of fun and, yeah. and in some ways kind of goofy too. Probably something that our audience will love. I, well, we'll see. Tell right? me when it's time to lodge a complaint. Okay. Because um, I got one. Okay, I'll, you'll see, I think, in my opinion, the quote kind of falls apart halfway through. All right. All right. I'll wait for that moment and then I'll, um, I'll release a large guffaw. All right. So this comes from a, an article called... Um, uh, are you a Tolkien guy? That, that's the nature of the complaint. <laughs> so it's too early for the guffaw. Okay. It's a Moriah. Is it Moriah or I don't know. People Moria. say Moria. Right. Okay. And what's that guy? Uh, is it Reese Davies who plays like... Uh, Gimli. Yeah, he plays eight characters in the in the Tolkien world. He, right? he, he, but he's most famously the dwarf. Moria. Something like Moria, that. Moria, right. Yeah, Scottish. So Moria and Hades, Underworld Journeys in Tolkien and Virgil. And this is by one uh, James Obertino. James Obertino. This appeared about 30 years ago, 1993. Was that 30 years ago? Yeah, I don't even want to think about it. Comparative literature studies, if you want to go look it up. Okay. So I, I, I found this just kind of searching around. Oh, maybe our audience would find kind of a comparison yeah. between Tolkien and Virgil. Interesting. Yeah. You're right? going to be able to read this with a straight face? I can. I think the first part makes some fairly kind of you know, generic but, but interesting okay. observations. But watch the second half. All right. All right. So the quote goes like this. While Gandalf corresponds to the Sybil. For he guides Frodo through Moria and provides the means necessary to enter the underworld. He also resembles Anchises, who bids Aeneas enter Hades so that he, quote, shall learn where your home is to be and your people's destiny. Similarly, Gandalf suggests the dark and secret way of Moria. Anchises tells Aeneas that he must bypass the damned of Tartarus. And Gandalf correspondingly prohibits drinking the deep water of Moria, as well as advising to, to always to choose the path on the right. Hmm. How necessary... Gandalf's prohibitions and advice are for Frodo is seen in his initial response of warmth and hunger on entering Moria. Essentially the reactions of a baby on returning to his mother. Okay, watch out, watch out. All right, here, here we go. Okay. All right. The comfort of darkness Frodo initially finds in Moria suggests that he is once again endangering of surrendering to the, wait for it, charm of Uroboric incest. Uroboric incest? Yes. As he did in slumbering by old man Willow and uh, and on the Barrow Downs. What, Uro, Uroboros. I had to look that up. Yeah. It, it's it's from the Uroboros, like that the snake eating its own tail. Oh. So the self deleting incest. I still have no idea what he's talking about. Oh, come on, Obertino. Right. Um, and the, I'll, let me finish up the quote. The light from Gandalf's staff and Frodo's mithril coat, even though it is covered by cloth, suggests the light of consciousness. Necessary to assure the ego <laughs> remains intact throughout Katabas. So it, it kind of it jumps off a Jungian cliff here. He certainly does. Yeah, right. right, yeah. So because Frodo's ego is weaker than Aeneas's, it is assailed by stronger forces in the depths and are thus needs more protection. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm a little bit lost. Right. So Frodo's ego is weaker than Aeneas. Is that just a way of saying Frodo has less self-confidence and less you know, personal and patriotic pride? I think so. And I think that's also that, you know, Aeneas is serving a a foregone fate, right? Yeah. He has kind of this reassurances from the gods at all at all times. And Frodo is, um, I mean, he's uh, he's timid, right? Yes. He, he doesn't know fully know understand what he's getting into. No. So I think part of what Tolkien is saying is that remember, 
Frodo volunteers to take the ring. Right. And Gandalf recognizes it's best in the hands of a hobbit because hobbit, hobbits are innocent. Yeah, they're and they're very naive, naive about the ways of the world. But, but also kind of inherently more moral. Less likely to be corrupted exactly. by the lust for power. Exactly. So what do you make of it, Jeff, when Obertino goes Uroboric? I don't, that last part is, is gobbledygook to me. Okay. Um, I mean, I thought the first part where he's comparing Gandalf to the Sybil as the guy. Yes. I mean, it's kind of classic Campbell territory. Yeah. Maybe the mentor. And also comparing him to Anchises, Gandalf is the old man. Yeah. Yeah. See, but Gandalf is a powerful hero in the stories. Right. Yeah. And Anchises is just kind I know. Of, I, I find that comparison a little yeah. not, not persuasive. But, I mean, it's both, they're both Katabases, right? Um, it's where, it's in Moria where Gandalf, you know, he... Has his death and resurrection, right? With the oh, yeah. he does the know, Balrog, the Balrog at the bridge at Khazad Doom. Yeah, are you? So you're a Tolkien guy? I love. Yeah, it's been years since I read the trilogy, but yeah, I loved it growing up. Okay, yeah, exactly. All right. So I think there's, I mean, a broad comparison uh, between Aeneas going into the underworld and Frodo going into the mines of, of Moria. Mm. But there's nothing really earth shattering about that comparison. Mm-hmm. And then the Jungian stuff about the the mother and the incest and the consciousness. And eh. the, the coat is the gleaming of consciousness. Ah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, that's like that goes a little too far to, for me. Yeah. But, but yeah. yeah but, you don't but, want the complaint. What, the lodge com- the complaint. Uh, what's the? Complaint? I promised to lodge a complaint. Yeah, earlier, lo- yeah, please. Yeah, lodge it. Yeah, the bigger the laugh, the harder guffaw, as yeah. they say. <laughs> The complaint was, um, I don't like it when people only know Tolkien and they want me to talk about Tolkien endlessly. And ah. They don't know about any other kind of literature, right? It's a, right. I'm just, I'm just born at the wrong time. Yeah, right? I suppose. Everybody takes Tolkien as the pinnacle of, of literary excellence. Okay, he's pretty good for the 20th century, but what about everything that came before? You wouldn't say that Tolkien is the Virgil of our times? No way. <laughs> Not even close. I wouldn't say he's the propertius of our times mm. or the Tabullus of our times. Tabullus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. rank him down there with Tabullus. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. not bad for 20th century, but come on. So you're kind of irritated by the, the amount of, of, yes. of, uh, of clout. Undeserved attention he gets. Right. People try to... Here, I'm just going off. Yeah, here you go. Yeah, okay. So people try to, you know, make themselves look literary by quoting Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Come on. Right. Now, I think this is... I think you're you're, you're, again, you're throwing some shade here. I am. But I think you're throwing you're throwing shade at really the stuff that kind of happened after Tolkien. I mean, Tolkien himself, I'm, I'm sure he knew his Virgil. Oh, he did. Right. And he knew all these, these you know, these medieval legends and yeah. such, right? I mean, he was, he was steeped in the stuff. Right. Right. So I think we can't fault Tolkien. No, no, right? I'm not faulting him. Right. No, but it's like with Lewis, the best Lewis wrote was not the Chronicles of Narnia. Agreed. It's when he's talking about literature. Right. right. Then he's actually quite astute and has some wonderful insights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. Oh, All well. Right, we're gonna, we're, Call me down, Winkle. Okay. Call me down. Gonna, shall we leave it there? Shall we move on? Let's move on. All right. So we got to get back into our, back into Virgil's That's underworld right. here, right? And so as we were talking about the the Roman underworld compared to, say, Odyssey Book 11 is yes. a, a much more organized place. That's right. Right. You and, liken it to a department store. Yeah. Or right. maybe a, an elaborate mall. Something like that. Yeah, you mm-hmm. get off on the escalator or the elevator here, and, and uh, you can expect um, people who died from fill-in-the-blank are going to be right. you know, on your left and on your right. And right there in the middle by the gumball sheen, machines and the fountain, yes. there's an illuminated you know, slab of plastic that says, you know, here you want to go find something to eat. Well, that's in you know 7A, the yeah. food court. Here you want to find women's apparel. That's in 13B and right. so forth. Exactly, right. Um, so when we last left this, uh, uh, Aeneas had he's crossed the river Styx. Karin took him across. Um, he left a, a treat for Cerberus, right? And now he's starting to see okay the different locations for the different um, uh, the hierarchy of the dead. Mm-hmm. And so he sees a place for where infants who died, right, you know, kind of before their time, uh, a place where people took their own life. Mm. Um, and so these places where people have kind of you know not they've died not according to their fate, correct? Kind of taken fate into their own hands as so they get their own uh, field, as mm. it were. And then it starts to get more specific. He, he finds himself in the fields of lamentation, mm. as Virgil calls it. And he finds um, people there who died uh, because of tragic love. Yes. Um, and so, the worst kind, by the way. The worst kind of love? Yeah, comic love is much better. Way, way better. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Someone throws a pie in your face and yeah. you're smitten. You're smitten. <laughs> That's how it happened for me. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so well, who, who are the people? Oh, who people are the like, ladies? Yeah, so you got Phaedra, you got Procris, you got Eryphile, you got Pasiphae. Evadne. Uh, Evadne, right. And then this is all set up, of course, all because right. who does he see there? He sees Dido. He sees Dido. He glimpses her at a distance. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so he's... Uh, 
Um, you thought you thought we were done with Diagnosis. I did. Right? And we thought, you know, she's... After all those episodes on book four. Right. And so not only did... I mean, it's a kind of a confluence of things. She did kill herself. Right. But she killed herself out of kind of the madness of, of love, right? Because and, Aeneas treated her like a jerk. He did. Right. Uh, again, you could use the, you could use the uh, um, excuse that, well, fate simply demands this. But uh, he could have handled that way, way better. I yes, think, definitely. I think, I think Virgil at least leaves that door a little bit open. Right. So now he sees the ghost of Dido in the underworld, and now he's he's uh, gonna. Well, how am I gonna deal with this? Yeah, he's what, he's uh, heartbroken. Yeah, he's torn. What can we? What can you say? Dave, would you read us some Latin? I here? would love to. All yes, right. this is lines four fifty five through uh, four sixty one, if I'm not mistaken. De mi sit lacrimas dulci quad fatus amorest in felix dido verus mihi nuntius ergo. Venerat extinctam feroque extremis acutam, funeris hell to be calcifui per sidera euro, per superos et si qua fides telurdras ab imest, intuitus regi natuo de litera cessi. Very nicely done, as always. Thank you. So let me give you uh, Lombardo's translation, and I'll, I'll back up to a little bit before the, Excellent. the lines that Dave just read. Now a woman returned to her original form, and among them her wounds still fresh. Phoenician Dido wandered that great wood. The Trojan hero stood close to her there, and in the gloom recognized her dim form, as faint as the new moon a man sees, or thinks he sees through the evening's haze. He broke into tears, and spoke to her with tender love, O Dido! So the message was true that you were dead, that you took your own life with steel. Was I really the cause of your death? I swear by the stars, by the powers above, and by whatever faith lies in the depths below, it was not my choice to leave your land, my queen. The gods commanded me to go as they force me now with their high decrees to go through this shadow land, this moldy stillness, the abyss of night. I could not believe that I would cause you such grief by leaving. Stop! Don't turn away. Who are you running from? Fate will never let us speak with each other again. Hmm. Those are moving lines. They're very moving. But do you, do you, do you still see him as kind of a bit caddish here? No. I mean, he's, he's, he's looking for it. He's trying to say, it's, it's, uh, it's me. it wasn't me, right? It was right. the gods. It was their fault. I had no choice. Right. Yeah, I'm persuaded. Okay. Yeah, I feel bad for him. This this sounds like real emotion, right? The way he speaks to her. Oh, unhappy Dido, infelix Dido. I wasn't the cause, right? Casa fui tibi, of your death. Right. No way. Right. right. So this brings us back to um, Mr. McCravey's question, too. Is like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is one of, of many costs that Aeneas himself has to pay to uh, allow this fate to go forward. Right. Right. Now, it's, it's, it's romance. It's a, it's a broken heart. It's, I, I suppose there are more serious sufferings you can go through. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is real. This is, this is very real. This is very human. Right. And, of course, the whole episode is based on the encounter between Odysseus and Ajax in Odyssey Book 11. Right. And they had, while they were both alive, an important alliance and actually friendship. But Odysseus wrecked it in the contest for the arms of Achilles. Right. Exactly. So he wins that contest. That's and, right. And Ajax thought he was the, the obvious one to kind of take up the mantle of Achilles. That's right. right. And Odysseus wins because he is a, a deceiver and a cheat. Mm-hmm. Right. The terms of the contest were the arms of Achilles go to the greatest hero. And as we'll someday see in more vignettes, more vignettes from Ovid, Odysseus wins by convincing everybody that, well, because I got everybody to go there, all of their accomplishments are really mine. Yeah. He's a cheater. He's a cheater. And, and Ajax then, you know, in uh, despair, takes his own life. Mm-hmm. He's there as a suicide. Right. And he also gives, he gives, like uh, Dido here, gives uh, um, Odysseus the cold shoulder. That's correct. We'll speak to him. Right. So here's Virgil's great uh, originality, I would say, and the important aesthetic principle is if you want to do something great, model someone who's great, but then do it a little bit differently. Yes. In an important way. Yeah. So it's not a broken friendship. It's a broken romance. Right. It's not two male characters. It's a male and female character. Right. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It, it brilliant. It reminds me of, I was just telling you on our drive over here, right. about how in, in class... We just got finished wa- finish, finish, finishing watching um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yes, the Coen Brothers. The Coen Brothers, which would make a great uh, topic for an episode uh, one day. And I think that's a, a great example of, of the, taking kind of source material mm-hmm. and then tweaking it in a wonderful new kind of way. And unexpected. Yep. Yes. Yep. So I'm going to read a little bit here from our good friend Brooks Otis. Yes. Virgil, A Study in Civilized Poetry. Which I still claim is the best book written on Virgil in it's 20th century. It's been kind of our Sybil throughout this, Absolutely. Uh, this uh, approach, yeah. So this is uh, from page 295, discussing the Odyssey and Aeneid. This passage, referring to what we're talking about, this passage assuredly compresses much in very little space. 
Its great importance for the book and for the poem as a whole is its revelation of the irrevocability of the past. Here Aeneas sees both what he had done and did not yet realize and what he cannot undo. Mm. His attempt at explanation at reconciliation is rejected and rejected in a manner that is far more cutting than any of Dido's tirades in the fourth book. Yeah, agreed. She indeed does not so much reject as ignore Aeneas. She has in effect reverted to her past life with Sichaeus and deliberately put Aeneas out of her consciousness. But this very act, especially her rock-like silence, is of course also an expression of irreconcilable hatred, the hatred into which her wounded love has now turned. She is far beyond the possibility of being moved by Aeneas's tears or sympathy. He, for his part, had quite failed to realize the full depth of her passion. He now sees that he has not, it has not only killed her, but fixed her in an unappeasable, unalterable enmity both to himself and to that phase of her life in which he had been concerned. Now he sees that he can never hope to smooth out the part of his past that Dido represents to ease his troubled conscience by receiving her forgiveness. He can only accept the fate accompli. Yeah. That's really that's really nicely said. Yeah. So, what do you think about what uh, Otis is saying here? Well, a, a, a detail that he, he that he mentions that um, we didn't get to is that not only should she not look at him, and not only does she ignore him, but we see her go back to her husband, yes, who had been killed before, and so she's kind of yeah reconciled with um, her first love, Sicaius, right? And so even In death, yeah, even that is going to be even a more kind of concrete like rejection right. of Aeneas and everything that um, they went through and, and uh, that he meant to her. So it kind of reminds me of that undergraduate question, right? What's the opposite of love? Hmm. Right? It's not hatred. It's uh, apathy. It's apathy or it, indifference. Yes. Right. And yeah. you remember discussing those things when you were a young man, I, you know, with your floor mates and about some young lady who just didn't, just wasn't interested in Winkle, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, of which uh, those uh, were legion. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, what's what's going on here? Well, the opposite of love is not uh, hatred, because both are strong emotions, right? right? It's it's indifference or apathy. Exactly right. So just kind of I mean, walking around, kind of feeling invisible, right? Is uh is way worse than I think than 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 somebody actually noticing you and, and raging. That's correct. Right? <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, this is Aeneas, right? He is the object of Dido's total indifference. Indifference, yeah. She's done with that part of her life. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a brutal scene. I find this much more um, moving and brutal than the than the Ajax scene. Oh yes, right. So I think you know Ajax is. I mean, uh, his rejection of Odysseus, it's still kind of rooted in that Achillean, uh, that Achillean rage, right? Yes. That, 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 the manus that, you know, that mm-hmm. begins the whole thing. This is, this is something completely different. And, I see. It, and in the, um, in, the, in the hands or in the minds or the actions of, of a woman, it becomes something completely other. Well said. But to step back a minute, mm-hmm. what do you think this scene accomplishes in the epic as a whole? Why is it placed here? The, I mean, the thing that jumps out at me is uh, we talked about at the beginning of the episode. It's another example of um, kind of fate saying or the gods saying to Aeneas is that this you have this magnificent thing in, in front of you, but it is going to cost you. It mm. is going to hurt. Mm. Right. And so Aeneas is again, he's, he's torn between perhaps what he wants and wishes, what he longs for as an individual human being, as a man. And what fate demands of him. Right. And fate is constantly saying, your individual wants and desires don't matter. Keep mm. moving. Mm. I mean, what do you see here? What's That's your... the same thing. Okay. I think that is um, spot on, as people like to say. Yes. As though they were British. Spot on. Right. You don't right. like it when people say that, do you? Well, no, because you're not British. <laughs> so when they used to say, keep calm and carry on. Yeah. Also nice. But don't pretend like it's original. You're just ripping someone else off. Okay, that, so that's a second complaint lodged today, I believe. Well, there are a lot. There's a lot more to be lodged. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> All right. So they they uh, they he has to move on, right? Um, not only to fulfill his fate, but uh, the Sybil says, "Hey, come on, stop, stop hanging around. We mm-hmm. got more places to go." And so they arrive then at the um, uh, what Virgil calls the farthest fields. Mm. Um, and now this is an area that's reserved for. Pretty good heroes, okay, but not the best of the best. We're not there yet. The pretty good heroes like Hawkman. Hawk, yeah. Oh, wait, what, what is with Hawkman? I don't know. Or is it, uh, yeah, is that is, or Hawkeye? Is that you talking about the guy? No, with I'm the talking bonnet? about Hawkman. There's a is there's the a DC, Hawkman. The, yeah, DC guy. He's got wings. He's a Hawkman. Okay. Not to be confused with the Falcon, who's a, you know, um, <laughs> a Marvel guy. Wow. Just pick any bird you want, right? Right. Goose guy, throw the bird throw, in there. And throw a guy or a man. Yeah, and that makes end. it a hero. Or throw a woman on there, right? Right. I don't know. What, what would that be? Um, is there a uh, 
Eagle Woman. Eagle Woman, Dove Lady, <laughs> something Dove, like right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I would also put, like, there's Hawkeye, of course. Correct. Right? With, with his bow and arrow. That's uh, uh, Renner, right? Jeremy yes, Renner. Jeremy Renner. Mm-hmm. I think he would be in this field. You think so? Yeah. So, Aquaman. Kind of a has-been, has-been-ish. Yeah, never kind of reached that. Uh, no. You know, he's not, he's not going to get his own movie. Definitely not. Right. So he see, Aeneas here sees lots of people from his past. And so, again, another nod towards Odysseus uh, 11. And he sees all these Trojan warriors. They're still bearing the um, the wounds that they right. carry, the war, which I think is a um, – I don't think uh, Homer calls uh, – brings those details into focus in, in, the, in 11. No. I, they're just more kind of immaterial ghosts coming towards them. No, there's Vaseline all over the lens, you know, yes. as uh, Homer pans across the underworld. Exactly. Right. So there's enough that Odysseus can recognize them, but um, – Beyond that, Achilles doesn't come forward with an arrow sticking out of his heel. No, so this is this. This reminds me of uh, the notions of Valhalla. Okay, in Norse mythology, where, can you say more? Well, so um, Valhalla is a kind of Norse heaven. Mm-hmm. It's a place reserved for great warriors, and the reward is that they carry on, they fight and do battle with each other all day, and then at night they feast and drink in the great hall. Okay, um, so it's like that John Lennon song, right? Imagine there's Norse heaven. That, oh wow. Exactly. I'm going to start lodging a complaint. You know how I feel about that song. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it taps into that the the that warrior ideal. You know, okay. if there's going to be a heaven. It's one. It's for it's for guys. Beer drinking. Beer drinking. Um, yeah. Sword toting. Right. Yeah. It's your man cave. Exactly. WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. And so he sees uh, a number of people from his past, in, including uh, one Deophobus, who's a son mm. of Priam, and he's extremely disfigured. Right. And he's all chopped up. And, uh, you know, Aeneas is horrified and, um, yes, you know, what happened. Right. I, I think that's, because he doesn't know. He doesn't know. I think that's a really interesting um, callback is that when in the kind of the chaos of escaping from Troy, which we, we read about in the previous books, right? yep. book two. Book two. Um, we realized that, you know, Aeneas, he, he flees without knowing lots of what happened. You know, he has no idea what happened to the vast majority of, of his countrymen. I mean, he assumes they get burned up or died or were slaughtered, but he has no kind of specific information. Right. And this is the first time that we see him really kind of conf- confronted with the reality. Right. Yeah. So can I depart from complaining mode to dogmatic mode Please. for a moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's common for uh, Christians to say, well, we'll we, we'll know that in the next life. Yes. Yeah, we'll figure that out in the next life. Right. And of course, I don't think there's really any basis for that. You know, there's there's no sense that in the next life we will be omniscient mm. and everything that we want to know about the world will suddenly be revealed. Yeah. I don't think that's just true. Nevertheless, there are many things uh, about, you know, our loved ones and friends that we're curious about. And so it's natural to think, well, maybe in the next life that portion of their identity will be more clear, right? Or, ah, or their yeah. past. Yeah. So I think that what Virgil is describing is not just something that is germane to the story, but it's a universal human impulse. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would, I would totally buy that. Yeah. And I, I, think, that, I think that's why I find Aeneas' encounter with Deiphobus here a lot more human than what Odysseus goes through. Yes. Odysseus, it's just one of these people come forward and kind of interviews them. It's a, it's more clinical, mm-hmm. I think, with maybe kind of his encounter with Agamemnon being an exception or Achilles. Right. Um, but this one is that, um, you know, Aeneas is really, he's shocked by what he sees. Right. Uh, and he's learning what happened to these to these people that were very close to him mm. not that long ago. No. Yeah. No, within a matter of uh, maybe a year, probably. Right. Since he's left Troy, about that amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, Aeneas asks him, like, you know, what happened to you? Yeah, and Deophobus says? He says, it was he- Helen did this uh, to me, right? And so, yeah, she says that she misled the Trojan women. Um, she signaled secretly the Greek army from the citadel. And so it's almost like it's she, uh, Deophobus uh, blames Helen a lot more than, say, Odysseus yeah. for the fall of Troy. And removing weapons from the hall, um, you know, kind of like Eurycleia does in the Odyssey. That's the nurse, the right? Nurse, You're right. the end of the Odyssey. Right. The, the loyal nurse who takes all the weapons out of the hall and they close the doors and destroy the suitors. Right. Odysseus and Telemachus. Right. So you're saying that Helen acts this way mm-hmm. as Deophobus tells the story. Mm-hmm. And so she's the ultimate uh, betrayer. And mm. uh, so Helen, in this epic, um, she survives a lot more poorly than she even does in... Um, in the Odyssey, yeah. you know, we remember we see her again, sure, back with Menelaus and Sparta. Yeah, book it, four with those witch-like capacities. It's it's, it's fishy. I mean, she's spiking the drinks and, right. and everything, but she's she's still the queen of Sparta. Yes, um, but here she is, um, she's a nasty, one. nasty, and a, a villain. Hmm. Right? And so Deiphobus, you know, prays for vengeance. Right, it gets that kind of impotent rage that Achilles has in Odyssey book nine. Oh, sorry, Odyssey book eleven. 
So, yeah, one of the, just kind of, if I, may I dwell on Do you uh, want to digress? Just a little bit. Okay. There's that, um, so when Odysseus meets Achilles. Yes. And, um, yeah, Odysseus makes all these assumptions and says, you know, you were the greatest among us. And right. says, don't lament your death at all. Right. And Achilles says, you have no idea. Correct. And he says, you know, I'd rather be low, the lowliest slave than the king over all these useless dead. Yes. A line, by the way, that has been repeated thousands of times by thousands of other authors showing the power of Homer's yeah. grasp on human psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That just, uh, it's so gripping. It's it, endlessly repeatable. It is. It's, it's great. And then, then Achilles goes on to say, he, says, he basically says, enough about me. Uh, how's my son doing? Right. And then he says, you know, how's my dad doing? Right. And then what I find so fascinating is that he imagines that his father is beset by enemies. And right. says, if, I, if I could only go up for like a day and wrap my hands around my, my father's enemies' throats, they'd know what it means to kind of, to experience my... My, my rage. You know, to dishonor the father of Achilles. Right. But what's so striking is that he doesn't know that his father's enemy is there. It's completely imagined. Mm. Right? And so that, that rage that destroyed him in the Iliad is back, mm. but now it's completely impotent. Mm. And, it's, and it's based on what he imagines, not even some kind of real situation. So the idea is that some of the tortures of the afterlife are imagined fears. Yeah. Not even real ones. Not even real ones here. And so when I have, you know, Deiphobus kind of praying for vengeance... It is kind of a an impotent kind of lashing out. It's nothing that he can control, mm. and unless somebody comes down to the underworld to tell him about it later, he's not going to know about. Mm. So it's it's really kind of pathetic. So futile. So futile. Yep. All right. So again, the Sybil is kind of dust brooming. Uh, Aeneas mm-hmm. along said, "We can't can't hang out here." Yeah, night. he wants to talk more. Right. But the Sybil says, "Hey, night is approaching. Right. You don't want to get caught out here in these fields when the sun goes down. So apparently even in the underworld, you have to kind of worry about sunset. I think so. It's interesting. It, um, so, yeah, you got to get moving. And that's where they reach the grand crossroads. Mm. And this is where we get, again, a very detailed kind of much more kind of a hell and a heaven right. in the Roman underworld than we than we tend to get in Homer. In, in Homer. Homer right. has kind of a, there's a place of suffering, but it's much more like you said, the Vaseline on the lens kind yeah. of thing. Right? And here I'd like to go Winkelian for a moment. Please. The crossroads is a liminal space. It is. Which way are you going to turn? Right. And you, oh, you, well. Oh, wait a minute. This wait. is my shtick. Okay, please, please go. Okay. Yeah. You've been liminal for the previous 99 episodes. True. Let me go liminal for a moment. All right, go for it. You come to the crossroads, which way are you going to turn? You're going to turn uh, to your right, to the west, and end up in San Francisco? Or are you going to turn left on 80 and go east and end up in, I don't know, New York or somewhere like that? Yeah. It's it's highly um, uh, provocative and evocative, right? You've got to make a choice right there, and yeah. there's no turning back. There's no turning back. There's no exits. you got to keep going. But if given a choice of left and right... You always go right. Is that true? Yes, because I mean, the the you know the the lightning flashes on the right, the birds on the right. That's those are all those mm. are all um, you know omens. blessed omens. And if, to bring a little Latin into it, okay, you, know, you the the word for right or right hand, dexter, mm-hmm. right, which by extension means um, fortunate. Yes, it lucky, does. Blessed, right? Mm-hmm. Skillful, and skillful, right? And so just the, being on the right hand side is inherently good. And then the word for left hand, sinister. That's right. Which survives wholesale in the English as, as something wicked. wicked and ugly. Mm-hmm. Right. So we come to this crossroads. Mm-hmm. You've got to make a decision. Which way are you going to turn? Right. And so off to the left, of course, that's where you find Tartarus, mm-hmm. uh, the place of punishment, the kind of the Roman hell, as it were. Bad dental hygiene. Yes, exactly. All that tartar, right? Um, that's where you need the crest. Glad you spelled it out for the audience. Well, well, you never know. That's where you need your, cro- your crest pro-health uh, um, dental rinse. That's correct. And right. to the right. That's where you're going to find Elysium. The Elysian Fields. Right. And that's where he's going to find his uh, his father. Mm. But uh, I love... Speaking lo- of finding one's father... Is it time? It's time for the ads. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Jeff, Racial Coffee out there in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Mark Helweg, the entrepreneur. That's him. Not uh, schlepping the mass-produced coffee no. to the folks. What is he bringing? He brings uh, these high-quality machines, um, the Ratio 8 and the Ratio 6. I have the Ratio 8. And one of the things I, I like about Ratio is that they combine a sleek, beautiful aesthetic. Um, but once you kind of press the button, you also get a tremendous cup of coffee. At High, the same quality. Time. High quality. High yeah, right? quality. They don't, they don't sacrifice on 
aesthetics. They don't cut corners on the drink. No, not at all. So I used to have the ratio, I used to have the ratio six, kind of the younger brother. That was a great machine. I had the the weighty carafe. Yeah, you had the uh, stainless steel, didn't you? I did the stainless steel, right. and there's no there's no scorch pad underneath, no. kind of keeping it you know roasting. Right. Um, but that carafe would keep it warm for hours. Right. Now in my ratio eight uh, that I have now, I have the kind of the beautiful hand blown borosilicate uh, carafe. Yes. Uh, it just pours very nicely. Oh, I right. Love, right. I, I thought yeah, never in my life would I appreciate how something pours. Yes. I, I mean, a, a year ago I thought, come on, you're right. ridiculous. But there's something so beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice. Right. Even you know, even filling the machine with water and then pouring the coffee. It's just it's a, there's just something elegant about it. It's a nice elegant morning ritual. So, Dave, if our listeners want to get one of these wonderful machines, the Ratio 6 or the Ratio 8, what should they do? They should go to RatioCoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O, it's a nice Latin word, Coffee.com. They should uh, browse Mark's large selection of high-quality, attainable, beautiful machines. Mm-hmm. When, they find the, when they find the one they want, they should enter this coupon code at checkout, A-N-C-O, that's Ad nauseum coffee, A-N-C-O-7-B, 7 Bravo. And that will get them 15% off um, either machine they That's choose. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, and this is an investment, let me tell you. This is not the kind of coffee machine that you use for a couple of years and then recycle, discard, you know, push out of your vehicle as you're driving along the highway, something like that, because yeah. you're sick of the way it looks. <laughs> this is something that you keep on your countertop long term because it's beautiful. And maybe even pass it down to your children. That's right. It's highly functional. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. I love these guys. They've been with us from, since the very beginning. Yeah, going on two years now. Two years, and uh, they've been with us. They believed in us when we were we were we were we were nothing. No, just a couple of uh, snot-nosed upstarts. Yeah, scrubs. Yeah, right. who didn't know um, didn't know. Uh, Pod from a cast. There you go. That's what I'm trying to say. So uh, they have they have offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as well as Indianapolis, Indiana. Correct. And they're celebrating their 50th year of, That's of right. business. And so whether you're in the Eastern time zone or the Central time zone, they got you covered. Boom, right there. Uh, they have a tremendous selection. That's one of the things I love about Hackett Publishing. They have so many different translations of classical works, but from um, all of the kind of corners of uh, of uh, of the university yes. and the disciplines. That's right. You're going to find East something. East Asian studies, South American studies, Is- Islamic, Islamic studies. Islamic studies, yeah. Name it. It's great. Um, and you don't like the covers. We don't need to talk about that. Love the covers. Okay. The, covers, yeah, the, the artwork is, 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 is usually beautiful uh, and clever. But they're overpriced and really expensive, Not right? Not at all, Dave. One oh, of the things I, on. my students love about this, in, in an era where textbook uh, prices are ridiculous, are criminal. That's right. You have Hackett Publishing offering uh, affordable um, but high quality translations and academic works. Um, they, We've been quoting from Lombardo extensively. Yes. There's also the Len Krizak rhymed edition yep. of, uh, you know, rhyming edition of the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. We've got Lombardo for the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, Ovid, we have the Ambrose translation and the Lombardo translation, plus Plato, their new Aristotle series, their Greek historians. They have everything. They have everything. So do yourself a favor. Go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Com, browse through their um, their wide extensive catalog and find something you like. And David, when they find something they like, what should they do? They should buy it. So, yes, but there's more to it than that, right? Um, they should buy it and read it. Well, you, you you can buy it, but you can enter this coupon code. Oh, right, right. the coupon code. And the coupon code is AN two zero two two. I thought you were asking me what the coupon code was. No, well you weren't you weren't you weren't <laughs> answering. So it's AN two zero two two. Yes, and that will get them two wonderful things: twenty percent off your entire order. And free shipping. You cannot beat that deal. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it now, after that lovely commercial break, we're Mm -hmm. talking about sinners and saints. Yes. Right. So um, Aeneas does not take the left-hand path, right? He's going to Elysium. That's where he's going to find his father. But we do get a, a, a pretty lengthy glimpse in that direction. And uh, Ane- uh, Virgil gives us this, again, this very um, uh, vivid picture of this, of this Roman hell. Yeah. Right. So um, this is the second time, if I'm not mistaken, this mm-hmm. is the second time that Virgil has given us a quick tour of the underworld. The first time is in Book Four of the Georgics. Oh, or right. Extended discussion. I say brief tour, but it's it's quite long in Georgics for mm-hmm. it's beautiful there. It's it's in the um, it's in the frame of Orpheus going down to rescue his wife, Eurydice. Right. And right. we're told about how his great minstrelsy, you know, how he can play so so well, stops all of the tortures of the underworld temporarily. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I'd forgotten about that one. Mm-hmm. Right. We got it. We got to We got to get back to the Georgics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 
So here we get this um, this wonderful kind of terrifying picture of um, of uh, Tartarus. Right. Right. So let me give you. Um, well, do we do we see the triple walled tower? Oh, right. So yeah, we see this triple walled iron tower surrounded by circling flames. Uh, it's a it's a it's a hellscape we hear of Tisiphone, the the avenging fury. Yeah. Do we want to do a callback to the beginning of this episode? In fact. Oh, with the Tolkien quotes. Well, th- this one is that's this is just something that I heard. Okay, and I I was kind of looking for kind of proof of this mm-hmm. uh, detail, but the, I remember hearing that uh, Tolkien borrowed the imagery uh, from this scene to for the uh, the Dark Tower for Baradur in mm. in Mordor, which is of course the hellscape of of Tolkien's world. Right, right. So I think that's correct. Makes sense. It makes sense, and and um and. Again, I think, yeah, Tolkien, he, he clearly knew his, his Virgil. Right. It wouldn't surprise me. Right. Um, so, Dave, you want to read a little Latin here? I would. Yeah. I'd love to. So, this begins at uh, 548. So, we have, Respecat aine ya subetet sub rupa sinistra, monia lata videt triplici circum data muro, quae rapidus flamisam bitor rentibus omnis, tartarius flegathon torquet quesanontius axa, portat veresin gain salido quatamanta columnae, we sut nulla virumno nipsex skinnerabello. Kailica lai valeant stat ferdriaturis et aurdras, ad aurdras, tisiphone quasidens pala suc quinta cruenta, and the last line, vestibul ex omnis servat noctesque diesque. Very nice. That nice internal rhyme there, noctesque diesque. Right, yeah, exactly. Someday you're going to have to teach me how to do those R's. I've never been able to do that. Oh, it That's took me a long time. You know this story? No. It took me 15 years to learn how to trill an R. Really? I still can't do it as well as, you know, your average eight-year-old child. But yeah, 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 yeah. It took a lot of practice to you even have, be able did, to do that. Did you have guidance or was it just trial and error? Trial and error. Well, right. it was... It was Error and error and error and error more yeah, than yeah. anything. Gotcha. Well, it's nicely done. Thanks. Your, your hard work paid off. Thank you. So I, and one of the things that strikes me in this uh, description is that, so in Odyssey, at the end of Odyssey Book 11, mm-hmm. we do get kind of a glimpse. Odysseus sees you know, some of the famous sufferers. There's, right. There's Tantalus and Sisyphus and Ixion and the like. Um, and But here in the Roman hell... Now it's kind of surrounded by walls, mm. and now there's somebody in charge. It's Tisiphone, this avenging fury who's kind of oh. overseeing this. So it's organized. It's a more organized hell. Mm. Yeah. Um, Lombardo's translation of the lines you just read, um, and plus a little bit more. Aeneas suddenly looked back and saw, under a cliff to the left, a great fortification surrounded by a triple wall and encircled by a river of fire, Phlegathon, that rolled thunderous rocks in its current. The gate was flanked by adamantine columns that could not be destroyed by any force, human or divine. High on a tower of iron, Tisiphone sat, draped in a bloody pall, sleeplessly watching the portal night and day, groans the crack of the lash, iron clanking, and dragging chains grated on the ear. Stunned by the noise, Aeneas froze in his tracks. What evil is here, priestess? What forms of torture? What lamentation rising on the air? Ah, that's grim. Isn't that grim? Yeah, it's frightening. Right. Tisiphone is one of the Furies, right? Yes. Sitting there with a bloodless pall, right? On it. what does it say, um... Draped in a bloody pall, sleeplessly watching the portal night and day. Not unlike the unblinking eye of Sauron. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I mean, I I read that. And it's, it reminds me of, of Tolkien. Sure it does. Right? Yeah. But, but uh, um, that I, I suppose that irritates you maybe a little bit. Uh, that it reminds you of Tolkin? Yeah. No, I just, uh, you know, it's better for Tolkien that he's reminiscent in even a small way there of, we go. of Virgil. Or maybe Dante, you know, maybe, yes. maybe he's drawing from Dante. Right, right. A larger question is, when you're going through a hardship, do you want it to be organized? Or do you want it to be more, you know, of a free-for-all? Because the the Odyssean portion, right, in, in the Odyssey, it's kind of a free-for-all. Nobody's in charge. Mm-hmm. Here in the Roman underworld, there's a strict bureaucratic kind of order. Right. I suppose for me, um, if I know there's going to be an end to it, yes, I guess I'd want it to be more of a free-for-all. I see. But here, there's no end to this. No. So maybe the order's a little better. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, like um, your famous comparison of Ozzy Book 11 is linked to the DMV. Yeah. Right? So it has the sheen of bureaucracy, but there's nobody in charge. Right? <laughs> the, the line is not going to move. No. Right. 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 So, so um, Like, uh, what is it? Uh, Selma and Patty, right? In The Simpsons. <laughs> exactly. They right. say some days we don't let the line move at all. <laughs> we call those days Tuesday. <laughs> exactly. Right. So would you be rather faced with something like that? Or here where Tisiphone is kind of saying, you know, you're in this room, well, you're I in guess, that room. I guess I'd like it with Tisiphone because, um, you know, to, to add to the pain and the torture, the sense of um, surprise would just be too much. Yeah. To, to know what's coming, even if it's terrible, 
maybe a little better than to be endlessly surprised. I see. So like, uh, it reminds me of like, uh, that's the Cassandra predicament, right? She can see her own right. bloody death coming. Is that better or worse than mm. having kind of, uh, it's surprising you? Well, I right? know what the Stoics would say. What would they say? Well, one of the famous Stoics, Chrysippus, uh, he said that, uh, you know, being sick and suffering is no threat whatsoever to virtue. This is recorded in, uh, in Cicero's De Natura Deorum. And so if you know that you're going to get sick, go ahead and find a way to infect yourself mm. just to get, you know, to get it over with, ah. because you can still be virtuous when you're sick. Right. No, no amount of nose blowing and cough drops is going to stop you from being virtuous. Hmm. So just go ahead and infect yourself. Interesting. Not persuasive. No, <laughs> I wouldn't go down that path. No. Yeah, right. Right. So we get, um, like in Odyssey 11, we get kind of a list of the, a lot of famous sinners and their, their particularly gruesome punishments. Um, Virgil goes into a lot more detail than, than, uh, than Homer does. Um, what I find it interesting is um, the, not so much the sinners, but the sins that they commit. And a lot of them are betrayal between family members. You have, um, you have patrons who have cheated clients. You have people that have been traitors to the fatherland. Mm. And it's, it's, it all comes back to kind of that Roman notion of pietas. Yes. Right. And so to deceive, to cheat, to betray your family. Yeah. That's, that's the worst. That's the worst. Mm. Right. And, and as opposed to maybe a Greek would say the worst is, you know, a son killing the father. Yeah. Um, or some some event in which your own arete isn't conspicuously displayed. Right. Right, right, right. You've got to have your arete right out front. People have to see that you're the, the greatest. That's the real insult. Right. And so here in, in the, um, the the Roman hell, the sins have to, you've, you've uh, betrayed the group. Mm. There's a much more kind of collective concern. Right. Right. So what does uh, the Sybil urge Aeneas to do? He said, and she's, again, she says, come on, keep moving. Hmm. So I find that Aeneas, he's kind of, he's dumbstruck at all of these spots and all he wants to do, he can't, he can't look away, right? right? Or he wants to talk more. And the Sybil turns to him and says, no, listen, you have, you came down here for a reason, do it. Right. So do you think that this is Virgil's way of trying to put us in the place of Aeneas? So we are, you know, Aeneas, we're seeing the whole underworld through his eyes. Yeah. And we want to stop and gawk and figure out and yeah. think about who these persons are and why they're here and so forth. Yeah. And so, you know, we're living through Aeneas and uh, Virgil is kind of the Sibyl saying, no, 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 no. got to keep going. Yep. We've got to get out of the story. Exactly. Right. So I think, you know, Aeneas asked these questions that, you know, uh, we might ask if we were saying like, what is that over there? What's going on? Right. Uh, why is that happening? What happened to you? Mm-hmm. Right. And Virgil kind of teases us by giving us partial answers, but then keeping us moving through the, mm. uh, through the, over the map. So they reach the, the, the doors of Elysium. Okay. Um, kind of the last stop on the trail. And so Aeneas, again, being the re- religiously correct guy, purifies himself with some sprinkles of water. And then he can kind of put the bow in its final place as kind of the key that opens the door. Open the doors to yep. Elysium. Right. And then he enters the, the so-called blissful groves. Hmm. And this is the place for the best of the best. Isn't that where your grandparents live? Somewhere near Tampa? So, yeah, right. Exactly. The Blissful Groves. The Blissful Groves. Right next to uh, Del Boca Vista. Phase three. <laughs> Phase three. <laughs> so shall I read a little bit here from uh, Lombardo? Yeah. Okay. So the offering to the goddess complete, Aeneas and the Sibyl now came to regions of joy, the green and pleasant fields of the Blissful Groves. Air and sky are more spacious here, and the light shines with an amethyst glow. The land here knows its own sun and stars. Some are at exercise on the grassy wrestling ground. Some contend on the yellow sand. Others tread a dance and chant a choral song. And Orpheus, in the long robes of a Thracian priest, accompanies them on his seven-toned lyre, plucking notes with his fingers and ivory quill. Here, too, is the ancient race of Teucer, a people most fair, high-souled heroes born in better times, Illus, Asaracus, and Dardanus, the founder of Troy. So Orpheus is down there. Yeah. You got the best band in the world. Providing all of the background music yeah. while you're wrestling on the sand. Or you're dancing. Beach volleyball. The right. sun has an amethyst glow. <laughs> Sounds pretty nice. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I don't know. Do you I, want musical accompaniment to your, you know, your feats of strength? Um, I mean, I like to listen to me when, you know, on the rare occasion where I do exercise. Yeah. Like when you did all that music. working this summer, Yeah, were you listening to a lot of Orpheus as you, as you went? Absolutely. Every okay. time. Right. How about you? I mean, do you, do you want or need a kind of a music to when you're lifting weights? Oh yeah. 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 I like to have some music playing in the background if I'm walking around the neighborhood or right. something. You typically want the music to fit the activity, right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. It's, it's got to be something, um, 
you know, during our Christmas episode, I talked about my great love of Haydn. Yes. Uh, but Haydn is music that you can fall asleep to. Right. It's so sweet and pleasing. It's not going to pump you up. You can't do that when you're, you no. know, running or whatever people do when exactly. they exercise. Exactly right. So it makes you wonder what... Uh, what uh, what kind of song Orpheus is singing? What his here? playlist was? Yeah, exactly. Right, um, something we could allude to in a later episode. We probably could. Right. Um, this is the this heaven here mm-hmm. is that when I talk about these concepts in my myth class, uh, a good half of my class tends not to like it because who made it to heaven? It's all the guys, right? It's, it's well, a, they're just representative though of the founders of the race. It doesn't mean there's no ladies there. Uh, does he mention any ladies here? I don't think he does. He doesn't mention any ladies in this group. Okay. But it does say, you know, the founders of the race, the founders of Troy, Illus, Asaracus, and Dardanus. Dude, dude, dude. Okay, so it's like in the scriptures, right, mm-hmm. where there's mention of, uh, you know, and King David died and he slept with his fathers. He was buried with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. I know, dude, 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 as you said. <laughs> representatives of the whole people. Okay. Isn't that okay? Well, I, I think that's okay. I'm just not sure if that's what's what's implied here. I think in some ways Virgil is kind of returning us to a um, kind of a Hesiodic golden age where, um, you know, the original um, members of the human race were exclusively male. Yeah, I don't buy that. Uh, you don't buy, and then Pandora is the first female and she's the one who gums up the works, mm. right? Um, I just took it as these are the famous individuals you know, who were the founders of the okay. the whole project. Okay, all right. It doesn't mean there's no ladies oh, there. All right, all right, all right. I just think he would have mentioned something. Okay. Right? So, because they're, I mean, they're out there doing, you know, dude-like things. They're wrestling. They're, uh, they're contending on the yellow sand. Exactly. They're tread a dance and chant a choral song that's well, exclusively male. Well, I mean, I think for a, in, in ancient, certainly a Greek, I mean, they, they had those, I mean, one of my favorite, you know, ancient Olympic events was the, was the warrior dance? You know, okay. in full armor, they're hopping right. around and being judged by guys with you know, holding up cards. You know? The Trojan game, right? Well, and then notice that Orpheus has a uh, an ivory pick, right? Yeah, plucking notes with his fingers and his ivory quill yeah. on, on his lyre. So you're a guitarist. Uh, do you have an ivory pick? I do not have an ivory pick. In fact, I probably I, because elephant ivory is banned. Well, maybe that's it. And right? you wouldn't want to admit on the air to thousands of people that you are, you know. Wicked. And they're just simply not available at Guitar Center. Okay. Right. Um, actually, I prefer not to use a pick. Oh, really? Yes. Um, but... Uh, so this is Valhalla 2.0? Yeah. So again, it's it's uh, it's kind of guys... Uh, so what what would you do in, in kind of this dude heaven? Will you go go on doing the things that kind of made your life great where you when you were in the upper world? Watching the game and eating nachos. Exactly. Right. Maybe doing a little dance. I don't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> Only when my team gets into the end zone. There you go. There you go. But, you know, competing, you know, okay. it's, it's, it's that athletic kind of warrior ideal. That's right. Right. So uh, just a little bit nicer, a little bit more um, uh, luxurious than in that previous mm-hmm. kind of corner of the underworld that we were just in with Deiphobus. Yeah, there's no popcorn trapped in the cushions. Right. Right. And, there, and Virgil doesn't suggest that anybody here is, are, can carry the, the wounds that they suffer in the battlefield with them. That's right. So if you're one of the best of the best... You know, you're, you got it made. You got it made. So it's a return to a pure state of nature, would you say? Yeah. So um, there's a, I mean, somebody says, uh, I forget that, uh, I think maybe even Chrysis himself says that the souls live there. They have no fixed homes, hmm. right? Nature just, the, the natural world just kind of provides what you need. Right. And that, again, that's a return to that kind of Hesiodic golden age is that civilization is a kind of a necessary evil. Okay. Right? You know, tools, walls, buildings are there because of, you know, the the fall. Okay. Um, but now here where uh, you don't need it. You can sleep on the ground and everything's perfect. And then he meets his dad, right? He does. He finds him out there reviewing souls yet to be born. Does he have a like a clipboard and a big stack of papers yeah. and a really cheap pen? Yeah. He's kind of calling people, you know, to get in order and he's kind of checking them off one by one. Okay. Right. And I was a little worried about this with you because right. it, it takes on the semblance of a parade. Okay. We, I know how you, Do you feel know about how I hate parades. <laughs> yes, we've talked about this. It's odd, too, because you know what the Latin word for parade is? What is it? It's pompa. Pompa. Yeah, which gives us the English word pompous. Right. So you'd think that someone like me would oh. like parades. Yeah, but it's not the case. No, 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 no. no. Right. Um, and so Aeneas, again, he's there. Again, he's, like you said, he's our stand-in. Yeah. He starts asking questions. Who mm-hmm. are these people? What's going on there? And um, and Chises, I think this is really interesting. Um, he explains kind of, you see these souls. These aren't these aren't people who died. No, they're yet to be born. That's correct. And so he kind of gives them this this kind of this notion or this path of reincarnation. Yes, this is called Traducianism. Traducianism. Traducianism, and it's much discussed in Saint Augustine. Hmm. 
where does the soul come from? Yeah. So there is one view, I think it's credited to the Church Father Origin, that souls are pre-existent. Mm. And then, you know, much on Platonic you right, know, exactly. explanation, they're sent down through the long pneumatic tube and then deposited in the box, you know, of the human body. Mm. Because otherwise, if each soul has an individual creation, you know, it occurs at the time of procreation, mm. which gets a little bit unpleasant, right? Because it makes it sound as though human beings can, you know, like create a soul. Create souls, yeah. Right. Uh, whenever they decide to procreate. Yeah. Right. And uh, so there was the view that, you know, souls are pre-existent. They walk along the shores of eternity. Maybe they're not conscious or sentient, but then at the right moment, God sends one down the tube and drops them into the human body. Interesting. So that isn't the majority view in the Christian tradition, tra mm -hmm. Traducianism, but it is one view. And, and Augustine talks about this. He talks about it. Huh. Yep. At some length. Obviously informed by uh, Virgil, Plato, Origen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Aeneas sees in Chises, kind of reviewing these souls. Um, uh, this is where Aeneas tries to embrace his father three yes. times and then uh, three times fails. Mm -hmm. It reminds us of Odysseus and, and his mother. Correct. Um, in uh, book 11. And why, why, Jeff, here's a callback, mm -hmm. why can't um, Odysseus hug his mother Anticlea? Because there are no huggable portions. She has no huggable <laughs> portions. There you go. <laughs> um, but then he also notices that he sees other souls drinking from the, this nearby river. Right. And he goes, what's up with that? Where, where it's where Red they Bull. Going? That's what they're drinking. Is that what it is? Yeah. Red Bull? Um, but it's the River Lethe, mm. the, river, the river of forgetfulness. That's right. And then here's where we get kind of this notion of, of not just new souls being born, but of being reincarnated. Right. 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 So I have been uh, complaining. I've been dogmatic. Yes. Can I go a little pedantic here? Please do. Yeah. Okay. So Lethe, uh, forgetfulness, is from the Greek verb lanthano which means to escape the notice of, right? Yes. So this is the noun form, lethe. Truth in Greek is aletheia, which mm. means not forgetting. Ah. So Plato made great hay out of this, right? What is knowledge? It's actually the not forgetting of something. Ah. So there's that notion of reincarnation. Very nice. Interesting. Interesting. Um, want me to read uh, Lombardo's translation? Yes, of this? please. Right, so... And Chises, uh, so Aeneas asks him, like, what are they, what are they doing? Right, the explain river? reincarnation. What's going on? Right. So, and Chises answered, and he revealed the mysteries one by one. First heaven and earth, the sea's expanse, the moon's bright globe, globe, the sun and stars are all sustained by a spirit within. Every part is infused with mind, which moves the whole, the source of life for man and beast and all winged things and the monsters of the marmoreal deep. Is this, is this stoic? Like this, you know, that all these things kind of contain kind of a divine spark. Uh, yeah, this is where Stoicism and Platonism are very similar. Okay, okay. A divine fire pulses within those seeds of life, a celestial energy, but it is slowed and dulled by mortal frames, earthly bodies doomed to die. And so men fear and desire, sorrow and exult, and shut in the shade of their prison houses cannot see the sky, nor when the last gleam of life flickers out are all the ills that flesh is heir to completely uprooted, but many corporeal taints remained ingrained in the soul in myriad ways. And so we are disciplined and expiate our bygone sins. Some souls are hung, spread to the winds. Others are cleansed under the swirling waters or purged by fire. So so yeah. it's like soul laundry here? Yes, exactly right. Some are hung, spread to the winds. Others are cleansed under swirling waters. Right. You take the souls out and launder them? You launder them, right? Some are just kind of stuck in the spin cycle. Can they throw a little feeb... What is it, what is it called? Febreze? Febreze. Febreze into exactly. my soul? Right. So I come yeah. out smelling better? Freshen it up, right. We each suffer our own ghosts, and then we are sent through spacious Elysium, and a few enjoyed the blessed fields, until the fullness of time removes the last trace of stain, leaving only the pure flame of ethereal spirit. There's like a, there's a detergent ad in here. Exactly. Right? I was just thinking, so. <laughs> until the fullness of time removes the last trace of stain. Right. Uh, Biz. Exactly. Fab. Yeah. Now, yeah, all new gain. Right? <laughs> It'll take the stain out of your soul. <laughs> A little bit more. All these, when they have rolled the wheel of time through a thousand years, will be called by God in a great assembly to the river Lethe, so that they returned the vaulted world with no memory and may begin again to desire rebirth in a human body. Hmm. Now, this strikes me as very optimistic about the future of humanity. Oh, yeah. In that, like, who, Far too much so. Who's being, who's being reborn? It's the best of the best. Yes. Continually laundered to get out all those stains. Yes. But if you compare that to... Um, like a Hesiodic view of humanity. Oh, this, is, this is a 180. Eternal decline right. is Hesiod, right. So I, I'm sure you know, Virgil is trying to paint this in terms of um, you know, Augustus and the future after Augustus yes. is, is all going to be bright and shiny and new. Right, but he's also hearkening back to the Platonic idea. You know, he's, the, 
without platonic psychology here of birth and rebirth, like the myth of Ur. Myth of Ur, right. You can't have any of this. Right. So I think probably Virgil rises above a, you know, a, a very temporary political interest to talk about something that he believes is true on the larger scale. So you th- you see, there's a, you think there's more Plato here than there is. He's kind of serving a. I think a, so. A, he's, he's pleasing his patron. I think so. Okay. Yeah. All right. You can also find here, you know, the good title for a song: "Grass Stains on My Soul." Yeah, well, that I think didn't John Denver write that? It could be. Yeah. <laughs> Thing of sunshine on my shoulders. Right. <laughs> Side B was "Grass Stains on My Soul." That's it. Was it was never as big a hit. No, it wasn't. But I, I like it better. Yeah. So I just thought that was really interesting. Kind of this. That's a very. A kind of oddly optimistic view of kind of mm. where things are going, mm. um, but um, but uh, yeah, I think it was a new world order. I mean, to yeah, to true. add something to the Augustan argument, it was a new world order. He was bringing in uh, an age of peace, right? So maybe there's a little bit of that bleeding into what Virgil's saying. Sure, sure. Um, and then we kind of we're getting towards the main event. Yes. Right? So because the whole point of this is for Aeneas to kind of uh, see what all of this is for. Yeah. The and parade of souls. The parade of souls, right? And maybe we should save the parade of souls for the next episode. I think because we're up against. Because Jeff, we? we're getting right up against it, okay. and I, I think someone's trying to get into the vomitorium oh, who here. Is it, who is it now? I think it's uh, something like the International Launderers Association. <laughs> they didn't like what we were saying down no, here, right? No. Or, or they were, or they were saying, "Hey, that that sounds like some good stuff to steal." That's our stuff. That's right. our stuff. Right? All right. Well, we better let him in here. We better. So you're saying that the vomitorium is about to go from studs to suds? Oh, Jeff, that's awful. <laughs> that's all right. All right. Let's, let's forget that ever okay. happened. All right. Before we get out of here, Dave, tell us about the Moss Method, would you? Yeah. So if you want to study Greek with me, if you want to go from neophyte to... Erudite. You can go to Moss Method, M-O-S-S, mossmethod.com and check out my many free offerings of Greek instruction. And then if you like what you see, you can sign up for the course. It's a great value. $325, right? It's just the cost of a coffee, practically. Maybe a coffee and a donut. Gets you 40 video lessons. It gets you 40 assignments, six uh, quizzes, two exams, and weekly office hours. And all uh, attended to you personally. That's correct. Yep. There are no flankies, no flunkies, no lackeys involved. I'm helping you directly learn Greek so that you can read this stuff. Excellent. And if they go to mossmethod.com, there's lots of free stuff if they, That's if they right. want to check out um, right. if they're not ready to take that deep dive. Church Fathers, Plato, Sophocles, New Testament, you name it. I also have a Latin program. You want to hear about that? Please Okay, you go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI, and here you can sign up for a course which takes you ab initio from the ground up, and I teach you Latin using Hans Orberg's famous Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata textbook. So I'm teaching to four charming, interested, competent individuals. Uh, Some have a little bit of Latin, some have none whatsoever. And, uh, and then I just teach them out of this book, and you get to watch, you get to participate without the pressure of being in the class. You get a lot of uh, additional supplements and helps to your Latin journey. And again, I think it is an extraordinary value, $199. And like the Moss Method, uh, no prerequisites, right? You, no prerequisites. It take you from, the, from square one on. That's right, from square one to square two. <laughs> and uh, I meet with you each week. So, uh, you know, if you want the direct experience, you want the curmudgeon, you know, uh, on the... Um, what would we call that? What? Uh, the curmudgeon on standby, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you can interact with me anytime you want. Fantastic. All right, hey, we got some people to thank. We do. As always, Mishka, our intrepid engineer. Thanks to Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music you hear throughout. Um, go check out Ken's Vocal Academy. Yes. And, uh, Scott's got a lot of music out there, yes, too. Yes, he does. He yeah. gives guitar lessons. Well, he doesn't give them, but uh, they're incredible. Yeah. So you might want to check those out if you like the guitar. You can get a T-shirt if you go to adnauseum.com, get one of our Erasmian-themed Quinokent Dokent T-shirts. Send us a line, drop us a line if you would like a shout out or you want to give us a suggestion for a show topic. We've gotten some great ones of those. Whom should they email, Jeff, and how? Well, if, they, if they're if they interested, they could, if they want to email you, Dave, they should write to dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or if they want to write to you, Jeff, the musical talented one of the two of us, you can email to jeff at adnauseum.com, A-D-N-A-V-S-E-A-M ad nauseum.com. And now, you know, I really enjoyed um, answering the, the, the listener question. So yes. I think we also, you know, if you got, if you, if you have questions, right. um, send them along. It'd be like a, a, like a feedback feature. I'm sorry, a mailbag feature. Yeah. I, I, that was a lot of fun. Yes, it uh, was. So encourage that as well. And I think, Jeff, mm-hmm. that you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. Next week, we're going to talk about, we back to, we're going to try to finish up book six, right? Oh, we got to finish up book six. Book six, yeah. We got a lot of souls to cover and some interesting discussion of Roman fate. Yes. But then we finish that up and we go on into the Iliadic portion, book seven. Yes, right. But you're right. I do have the, the parting shot today. And this one comes from Heidi Schultz. 
uh, uh, from a book called Hook's Revenge. Yeah, and I think if I may, Hook's Revenge is a retelling of the Peter Pan story from the perspective of Captain Hook. So it's in keeping with that idea of take a great original and tweak it. It's like with uh, with Wicked, the the um, the musical. Oh, that's about um, the Wizard of Oz. From the viewpoint of the Wicked Wizard. Right. right. So um, the quote is, Jocelyn's stomach lodged another complaint with the management regarding the length of time. I can relate to that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.